Good to see everyone here. Really good to be together. Just uh, a note, uh, just in ca- for clarification, if you're sitting down, you do not have to have a mask on if you don't want. If you want one on, you can certainly wear one, but just, just so that we're clear about, um, if we're wondering about that, we don't, we don't have to wear them. Don't necessarily want to wear them when we're sitting down, so. Um, yeah, good to see you. It's so good to be together. How many of you have been enjoying going through Romans 8? Few? Good? Just a couple? That's, oh, it's good. It's better than none. It's okay. I've been, I've been really enjoying uh, in being in this chapter and just spending some time in it the last number of weeks and, and really felt the Lord speak to me about um, talking about life in the Spirit. And Carlin gave a good sort of... Um, segue into where we're going to go next week and beyond. Um, we're going to talk for a few weeks. We're going, to, we're going to go back where we were almost a year ago. If you remember, we never finished the back half of 1 Corinthians. And we're going to talk about understanding and um, seeking after, if you will, embracing the gifts of the Spirit. And we're going to go through 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 together and, uh, and unpack those chapters, which we didn't when we couldn't meet last spring and so now that we're back together, it's going to be really good to go through those chapters and just understand, and, and how do we, you know, where Paul talks about it, how do we eagerly desire the gifts? And so we're going to, we're going to look at that and unpack that. But as we, as we conclude Romans 8 today, I want, to, I want to keep encouraging us to keep at the forefront of our minds what this chapter says life in the Spirit is all about. It, it's talking about how lives are to be directed by the Holy Spirit, or according to the Spirit. Paul talks about how we're, we don't live according to the flesh anymore. We live according to the Spirit. There's this vibrant and deepening hunger to happening inside of us, or to be happening inside of us for the Holy Spirit, to be experiencing more and more of this presence and this life in the Spirit, to have our lives guided, direct, and immersed in the Spirit of God as we live to the way of Jesus. And this, this, ultimately, this isn't about an intellectual knowledge or various theological positions. Those do matter, and it is that. But rather, more than that, it's about how this changes our lives, how it changes and transforms you to be more like Jesus, to live according to the Spirit and to live in the power of the Spirit. It's about lives increasingly experiencing the presence of God, and the freedom of God. And that's a big thing that we are, we are experiencing God's presence with us. His, not just his omnipresence, but his manifest presence. That, that we actually are hungering for that. And there's a huge difference between the omnipresence of God and the manifest presence of God. And that in that, out of that's coming freedom in our lives. And so as we head into this last, these last verses of Romans 8 this morning, it's important to remind ourselves of the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives because it, it's not as clear in the back half of Romans 8, but it's all connected into what Paul, where he started with living according to the Spirit. And Jesus had a lot to say about this in the back half of John. He said, I'm just going to quickly kind of just some bullet points here, reminding ourselves what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. He says, I will ask the Father, 
to give you the Holy Spirit. He's the Spirit of truth. He says the Holy Spirit will lead and guide us into all truth. He says the Holy Spirit will take what is mine and declare it or make it known to you. He said the Holy Spirit will live with you and will be in you. And he says the Father and I will be in you. We will make our home with you. And Jesus says I will show myself to you. So the primary focus of the Holy Spirit is to draw all the attention to Jesus, to draw us into the faith, the hope, the love, the obedience, the adoration, and the dedication that defines relationship with Jesus. So the words that Jesus speaks there in John 14 to 17, they reveal that this fellowship with the Holy Spirit and Jesus is for all of us. And, and we shouldn't, you shouldn't settle for anything less. Like there, when you read what Jesus says in John 14 to 17, you don't have to settle for anything less than that in your life. Jesus promised it, and we're to live according to the Spirit and in the freedom of the Spirit. J.I. Packer, he speaks of the Holy Spirit. He says he's like a floodlight that illuminates and shines on Jesus. Like he's standing behind us, illuminating. He says, it's as if the Spirit stands behind us, throwing light over our shoulder on Jesus, who stands facing us. And so the Holy Spirit, he's constantly drawing you to Jesus. And what he's saying is, look at him. See his glory. Listen to him. Hear him. Go to him. Find life in him. Go and find that life of abundance that Jesus promised. The Holy Spirit's always doing that. And as Ron, he said this last week, and, and maybe we know this, but it's always good to remind ourselves, it's crucial to understand the Holy Spirit is a person. The, the New Testament constantly refers to the Holy Spirit as he. He's not an it. He's not a force. He's not an influence. The Holy Spirit is a person. This is helpful, but also crucial that we understand this in light of the last half of Romans 8 and how it connects to life in the Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because life in the Spirit is connected to Jesus and abiding in relationship with Him, nourished, sustained, and growing in Him. We live according to the Spirit who in, in all things, in all things, He's leading us to Jesus. In fact, it even talks about that in Romans 8 earlier there, where it says that it, it says that his presence lives in us and it speaks of us having the Spirit of Christ. Like Paul interchanges, he says, live according to the Spirit, and he talks about the Holy Spirit, and he interchanges it with the Spirit of Christ because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. And you're like, well, that kind of is weird, and that, that leads us into this complex thing of the Trinity. I'm not gonna get into that, but but the Trinity is astounding and complex, and it deserves our attention. I just, I just want to say this about that. Daryl Johnson, uh, you may know him. He's written a few books. He wrote a, a little book. It's like 100 pages. It's so good. If you ever want to read it, it's called Experiencing the Trinity. Really not that long. And he says something there that's really helpful for us, I think in working out Romans 8, actually, as a whole for us. He says this. Most of us, are not yet experiencing and appropriating all that was given to us at conversion. We know something of the love and the power of the Father. We know something of the forgiveness and the freedom of the Son. We know something of the pervading and transforming glory of the Spirit, but we have yet to know the fullness available in the triune God. The triune God simply means that God is Father, 
Son, and Holy Spirit, right? And it's profound. But we, we live with this hope amidst tension in our lives. And, and we, we live with this, this tension of things are not the way they're meant to be. Just look around and you'll live with this tension all around you. But the ministry of the Holy Spirit makes a profound difference in our lives. And so this morning, I wanna, we're going to look at verses in the back half of Romans 8 that, you know, when we read them, you might go, these are really familiar verses to some of us. We've probably read these a lot. They're, they're so, they've been quoted a lot. Um, verses, remi- verses that remind us of the confidence that we have, the questions we can answer in our lives, and the assertion that we can live from. So I want to talk about the confidence we have. And if you want, you can open up to Romans 8. Uh, We're going to read verses 28 to 30 to start. And it'll be on the screen too. And we know, Paul says, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Father, we just want to, right now, we want to pause. And I want to pray and I want to ask that you would open up our minds and our hearts and everything that we are to receive the the depth and the richness and the beauty of these words this morning. That you'd be working in us, Holy Spirit, to show us more of Jesus through this, that we would grow in our our desire and our hunger for more of Jesus through what we're going to hear and what we're going to look at this morning. Amen. So, do you ever get what I would call is like, this is really not good situation? Do you ever get into one of those like where you're like, this is really not good and, and I've, I've had many of these in my life, and you might have had many of these in your life, where, and, and you, if you start thinking, you'll recall some. I'm not going to get into the moment of my wedding. Uh, some of you may have heard this story where I thought I was going to be arrested. Uh, won't go there. Um, and you're all like, that's a tease. Few, but a few years back, we had gone to Vancouver uh, to be with Jess's family for Christmas, and as part of our trip... Um, I can't, I think it was one of, maybe our 15th anniversary, Justin and I, but anyways, I had arranged that we were going to go down to Seattle for a few days together, just the two of us, and, and I, I think I had even maybe kept it as a surprise from her, I can't quite remember now, um, but when we got there, we, re- I realized, we realized, maybe it was me, that we didn't have our passports to cross the border, they were in Landmark, and it was like one of those oh no, this is really not good. Like, we're not getting across the border and I've got all these reservations and yada, 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 right? And I can't remember, there, there, it wasn't that many days before when we had gotten to Vancouver and realized this, before we had to go down to Seattle. And so we were like, what are we going to do? And I was actually trying to remember this week because I, I had like a little bit of memory, like what happened there? And, and Michaela, who now says that she has a better memory than her dad, she probably does, uh, she said, she reminded me that, Carla, I think it was you who FedExed our passports to us because you were working in our house at the time, and, and you were the one who got them to us in the nick of time to go down to Seattle. 
Anyways, in the end, it all worked out. But there was that, that was a time where, for, for a couple of days, it was like, this doesn't look good at all. And th- there's these situations, these seasons, these circumstances, all manner of experiences in our lives that they, they come into our lives. And they can come all of a sudden into our lives, and they feel really unsettling. And some come for short bursts, come, some come for like long periods of time. And, and what we expect should happen in those days, right? Because we all have a level of, this is how I expect things should go. And when things don't go as they should, a la the last year, it plays a large role in how we feel. It, it has a massive impact on how we feel and how we look at things, our outlook. So I've been using the NIV for these messages. How we interpret verse 28 there, I'm going to have it on the screen, yeah. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Now, you can take that verse, and if you don't interpret it correctly, you can go, well, as a follower of Jesus, all things should be working out for my good, because God works for the good of those who love him. So if, now, think about this. If you come to that sort of theological position and expectation in your life, and all of a sudden things don't go well, this can be really, really unsettling. Actually, it can lead, and it does lead to people, depending how deep you've gone into that thinking, it leads to a crisis of faith if it's a really serious situation where people are like, I, I didn't expect this. God, where are you? Why are you not working for my good? How, how can you allow this to happen to me? And it can throw people into just complete chaos in their lives. This is why... Verse 28 in the ESV, because it's a lower, more literal interpretation of the Greek, something that's helpful, it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not all things work together for good, or sorry, not all, that all things are good, but all things ultimately work together for good. God is doing a work. That's a, that, that little switch in how you look at life and how you view God and how he works in your life can have a massive impact over the years in how you grow and how you live according to the Spirit. Because we know in life, just think about life, that not all things work together for good. I mean, it's plain if you, when you look at life, that's certainly, that you could never claim for that really to be the case. But in all, God is working for our ultimate good which, verse 29 says, is to conform us or to make us more like Jesus. It's actually really simple. God is working all things in you, even things you may not like, situations that you don't understand. And he's saying, I'm doing all this because ultimately I'm concerned that you're being conformed. You're becoming like Jesus. And an important qualification here, as God is committed to this process, it says, for those who love him. This is, this is not a guarantee for everyone on this earth. And it's tempting today, it's really tempting to make the gospel very palatable, very inclusive, to have that, a very inclusive approach to faith. Now, having said that, faith in Christ is inclusive. It's incredibly inclusive. But the requirement is, and there is a requirement, is that you love God. Meaning, Jesus says, if you love me, you will what? says it in John, you will obey my 
commandments, right? He says, so, so love is, there's a requirement. If you love me, you will walk in obedience to me. It, that's the way of discipleship. The way of discipleship is, I will obey Jesus. He's my Lord. He's my master. I surrender my life to him. And that's how I love God. Partly is how I show my love by my obedience. And so these verses, they also, they raise the question of divine election, predestination here. It says, he talks about, and for those God foreknew, he also predestined. But the truth in that even is that Though there is a decision, yes, we make a decision. You make a decision to follow Jesus. There's a, there's a conscious decision that happens. We're not robots. We make a conscious decision. But even in that, even having the ability to make that choice, yes, I will follow Jesus, is because God made it possible for you to do this. It, when you were dead in sin, Ephesians 2 says, God made you what? You were dead, God made you alive. If you're dead... You're not doing nothing. Verse 29 speaks of those who God foreknew. And you go, what, is, what does that mean? What does foreknew mean? Well, biblically, to know is far beyond intellectual agreement. It speaks of personal care and relationship. Like, biblically, to know is synonymous with love. So you could almost read that as, for God foreloved those he called. He loved you. There's love there. It's not just knowledge. And some of the objections to this doctrine of predestination, meaning that God chooses some and he doesn't choose others. Now, again, so just pause there. Yes, God chooses, but God desires all to be saved, it says in the New Testament. He says that to Timothy. We have a choice to reject God. There's a choice in that. We all have free will. But the, the, the worry, the objections to this thing of predestination is that it fosters arrogance or, and or complacency in us. Like, I'm chosen and, well, I don't have to do anything now, sort of thing. And I think the best way to combat that if, if, when people wrestle with that is to know the Word of God. Because when you know the Word of God, you will be overwhelmed with the truth of His mercy and grace that God chose you, not because of anything you've done, not because of any inherent goodness in you. There's none of that. God chose us in His mercy because He loved us. We were without hope, it says. And now, what do we live? We live to the praise of His glorious grace. And we, and we live to give witness it says in 1 Peter, to this in our lives, what he's done in our lives. And so it's incredible here what verse 30 actually declares for our lives. It says we are justified. We, meaning you are made right with God. You are made righteous, right with God by the blood of Jesus. And then it says that we are glorified. Now, what's so interesting is when Paul says this, and you are justified, and those who justified, he also glorified. The, the tense there is past tense. Now, I don't know about you, but when you think about glorified, you go, we're going to be glorified. You look at that as a future coming reality. Like, I'm not glorified yet. That's coming yet in eternity. Yes, but Paul uses it here in the past tense, meaning he's using it as like in a prophetic past tense. It's already done. Yes, you're going to receive this, 
but it's done for you already. He doesn't change the tense from justified to glorified. That's incredible when you think about, when you think about the implications for that in your life. One New Testament theologian, he said, this is the most daring anticipation of faith in all of the New Testament, that little claim. It is. It's so daring, but it's true. Now, you might go, well, where's sanctification on this list? He jumps right from justified, made right with God, to glorified. Isn't there like some process in between on this earth called sanctification, meaning to become more like Jesus? It's the, what sanctification is the very process that happens between justification and glorification. It's the whole, it's the whole process in between. That's what sanctification is. Dallas Willard, he makes the point. Justification, being made right with God, right, is not something separable. It can't be separated from regeneration, meaning you've been made alive. And regeneration naturally moves into sanctification, being made more like Jesus, and glorification. This is the purpose of discipleship in our lives, to follow the way of Jesus. Eugene Peterson has this great term. He calls it a long obedience in the same direction. It's a long obedience. You set yourself to it in the same direction. That's following Jesus. Being committed to an intentional discipleship process in our lives, partnering with God to grow in transformation and holiness. That's for every single follower of Jesus, every single one of us. And none of this is apart from the witness and ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives, reminding us that we know God is at work in our lives, deepening our confidence in this truth and conforming us, making us to be more like Jesus. And so this leads us then into the next part, questions the questions that we can answer. So I want to read verse 31 to 37. What then shall we say in response to this? And so Paul's saying, like, this is amazing what God has done for us, what he's doing in us. What shall we say in response to this? How do we respond? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is it? Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. These are the types of questions that Paul raises here in many variations and in many forms 
that make up a lot of the questions that we grapple with in our lives and Satan will try to use to try and discourage us and tear us down, to leave us disillusioned, demoralized, to keep you ineffective in your faith. So think of that first question. It can come to us like this. Who is against me? Who's against me? Now, depending on what you're experiencing at times in your life or a particular situation, that question can leave you feeling pretty low because both, both from external adversaries that you might be facing or even stuff inside of us that seeks to come against us, where there's stuff inside of us seeking to condemn us, seeking to, to make us feel like we don't measure up. Honestly, how many times do we struggle with this in our lives? And I think the answer is a lot at times. Where we go, I feel like this is against me. Or how about the second question? It can come to you like this. Will God not graciously give me all things? Now, again, in the context of Romans 8, he's talking here about all the promise of eternal life, all the future glory to come. Will God not graciously give us all of that? depending again where we find ourselves, we might be reluctant or we might raise doubts about that. Oh, I don't know. We might, we might demur and go, well, uh. the reality is is that there's, there's things in life that can serve to raise serious, serious doubts in your life. Things that leave us asking, why? And we don't have the answers. But it is everything that has come before here in Romans 8, everything before this, and specifically those verses there in 28 to 30, that leads Paul to ask these five questions. And they serve almost as declarations here of God's goodness. Like he's saying, in light of everything, and he, he declares this, if God is for us, who can be against us? Think about that. If God is for you, ultimately, who can be against you? No one. The answer is obviously no one. Since God didn't even hold back his own son for your redemption, why would you doubt if he can freely give you all things? He didn't withhold his son. Since God justifies us, who's going to mess with his chosen ones? Who's going to mess with us? Who will condemn you? Jesus died for you. There's no condemnation, it says there, beginning of Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus died for you. He was raised to life. He's at the right hand of God right now, meaning he's exercising all power, all authority to save you. And he's interceding for you. Meaning Jesus continues right now to secure all the benefits of his death for you. They're secured for you. Who will condemn a person covered by the blood of Jesus? And the answer is no one. What can separate you from Jesus' love? There's a lot of things in that list, not to get too deeply, because we could could dig into those things that Paul talks about, trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. You could spend a long time just unpacking all the ways that that can come at people in life. And a lot of those things, if they happen, all of a sudden, they could seem, be seen as evidence. God's love has been removed from me, or it's absent from me. 
Lots, there's, there's so many scenarios here that have been faced by followers of Jesus over the course of history since Jesus was on this earth that, you, that we don't even want to fathom. If you read the history of the church and what's happened to followers of Jesus, there's stuff that we don't even want to think about, but we need to think about it. Because the current state of our Western culture has lulled us into a state of existence over many years where we believe that we are owed comfort, we're owed freedom, and we're owed safety. Those three are huge. They're everywhere. And they are, they are, we've internalized them, and we believe that we're owed them. Just, just consider the level of angst with covid just, just, just think about that. The level of fear and angst over that. These verses speak of far worse situations. Like infinitely worse. Not to be morbid, but they do. Than what we're currently experiencing. So what happens when what we have come to expect could be taken away? Do we go, I, I don't know, I don't, I don't think God loves us. I, I don't think God is there. I don't think God's working. I don't need, maybe he's not even real. I don't know. Paul's conclusion here is that we are more than conquerors through Jesus who loved us. The tense here again in verse 37 reveals that Paul is speaking of the love that Jesus displayed for us when he was on the cross. Through the cross, Jesus proved his love for you through his suffering. And so any and all suffering that we experience can never, ever separate you from his love. Remember, Paul said in, earlier in Romans 8, if we are, we are co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we also may share in his glory. So when you face suffering, it is not any... It, it's, it's not any proof that God is not at work. We go through that. But we can embrace suffering, actually, not that we're not welcoming it, but when it comes, we can embrace it, that it actually has great purpose beyond what we understand. It's not to welcome it. It's not to diminish it. It's not to be dismissive about it. But we can embrace this truth in our lives for its presence, that suffering unites you to Christ in profound ways. Suffering joins you into the suffering of Christ in profound ways, and he meets you in those times like he won't meet you in other times. I'm not saying Jesus won't meet us, or I should clarify that. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that there's something profound about how Jesus will meet us in those really difficult things of pain and hardship and seasons. Because through suffering, we learn what union with Jesus really is and the glory, the glory that is to come. And so the multitudes of questions that can be hurled at us throughout our lives from others, from our own doubts, or from Satan that would tempt us to doubt God, it can be answered by the next verses, and that is we're going to talk about the assertion that we live from. So verse 38, Paul continues. He says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, 
neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a progression here in these verses that we've been going through where Paul says in verse 28, and we know, to verse 38 where he now says, and I am convinced. And again, the tense that he uses there is, he's saying, I am and I remain convinced. Like I have come to a place of that I'm settled and I cannot be altered in this. I am absolutely convinced of this fact. And then to assert where he stands when it comes to any manner of things, again, that would question God's love for us. He, he puts his stake in the ground, if you will. He just like he plants it. And he's like, this is where I am. This is where we are to be. And this is quite the list. When you look at this list again, Paul is, he's attempting in a way to encompass all things to communicate that there's nothing, nothing in all this earth, nothing in the heavens above, nothing in all the universe, nothing that can come between us and the love of God. Seems that he, Paul might be using some language here to counteract some of the Greek thinking of the day that was really tied up in uh, astrological forces controlling the destiny of mankind. Or he might also be thinking of Psalm 139, that speak of the depths of God's presence where it says that the psalmist says, like, like, where can I go that your presence isn't? Like, basically, the psalmist is saying, there's nowhere I can go. If I go to the depths, you're there. Highest heights, you're there. There's similarities here with the prayer in Ephesians 3 that Paul prays for the church that we would know the depth and the magnitude of God's love for us. So at the, at the, they called it this, at the celebration of resurrection for Eugene Peterson. How many of you know who Eugene Peterson was? Pastor, author, a few of us. Amazing guy. They called it at the celebration of his, uh, sorry, the celebration of resurrection for Eugene Peterson. Like, don't you love that? I was like, no, that's awesome. Anyways, his son gave a eulogy there, and he joked that no one had figured out in the 50-plus years that Eugene Peterson ministered, that he only had one message that he, his entire life that he kept preaching. He said, it's basically the same message my dad had his entire life, and he said, no one figured it out his entire life. He was, obviously, he was joking, but he said this. He said, this was the message. He said, this is the message my dad had, and he said he would whisper it into my ear at night. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He's relentless. And I was like, I think that encapsulates so much of where we've been at this morning. I, I think that's it. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you, in fact, and he is relentless. And it's the Holy Spirit who keeps reminding us of this truth. We know this because Romans 5.3 says that we have hope that doesn't disappoint because God has poured out his love, love displayed on the cross, into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. It's been poured into us. And the gospel is simply this. You are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe. 
You are. Yet you are more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope because Jesus lived and died in your place. You are. This great exchange happens when we, t- we put our trust and our faith in Jesus Christ. God pours his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, and he says, you're mine. You're mine. I'm relentless. You're mine. So I want to invite you to receive this, that assurance this morning to put your faith and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Because out of this assertion, or assurance, sorry, is the assertion that we live from. As we pursue, as we seek, and we pray for more of the Holy Spirit in our lives, as we're stirring hunger and desire for more of Jesus in our lives, the Holy Spirit responds in that, and he reveals more of Jesus to us. It's what he loves to do. He will absolutely do it because that is what the Holy Spirit loves to do. As we seek more and more of him, he will just respond by giving us more and more of Jesus. So I want to leave you. I want to end by leaving you with some application as well. Because, yep, Romans 8 ends now. But the pursuit of life in the Spirit doesn't. We don't. Hey, we've talked about life in the Spirit for three weeks. Check mark, done, let's get on. No, this is, this is just the ongoing. Let's, let's keep pursuing. And so I want to give you some application to cultivate and grow this in your life. And again, we've, we, you know, we've talked about other things in the past weeks. Like again, just keep praying, setting aside time, seeking the Holy Spirit. But there's some questions here as well to ponder, journal, meditate on with the Lord, put before the Lord. Where does God want to speak and reveal more of his love to me? That's the first question. Two, what fears are operating in my life that are hindering awareness of God's love for me? Three, where am I prone to doubt God's love and presence in my life? And four, how will I intentionally pursue more of the Holy Spirit and his presence in my life? Let's pray. Jesus, you are you're absolutely marvelous. God, you are so relentless. I thank you for that. That that's the testimony of so many of us that you are relentless in coming after us wasn't because of things that we've done or did. It's because of your mercy and your goodness and your grace. And as we've responded to you, you pour out your Holy Spirit into our hearts and you awaken us and you witness to us. You remind us, this is who you are. You're my child. I've adopted you. I'm with you, I'm ministering to you, I'm interceding for you. When things aren't going well, when things look hopeless, when there's so many questions that we don't know the answer to, I'm with you, I'm with you. Because I've already paid the price. It's over, it's done with. There's no question. 
We receive all of that truth for our lives, God. We want to live from that truth that you've poured out your spirits into our heart and you invite us to come live, live in the abundance of what I've, what I've already attained for you. It's there. Come and partake. Have life with me. And so, Lord, we ask that you do that. You'd stir us, stir us, stir our hearts for more. We pray this, Jesus, in your wonderful and powerful name and with faith that you will and are accomplishing this in us. Amen.